So good afternoon. Um, as Garrett already mentioned, my name is also Garrett. Uh, a little bit about me, I was raised um, for the first 10 years of my life in western Uganda on the Congo border. Uh, moved to the States when, when I was 10. I met Garrett at that point. Um, and then met my wife in high school. And uh, you might have seen my wife and my son. I think they had to leave because of my son. Um, he's a little rambunctious. He's 11 months old. Um, and he's been a lot of fun. But uh, over the course of dating, God led my wife and I separately, but at kind of a similar time to the conclusion that uh, really the needs that he wanted us to address in our lives were on the mission field, and specifically with unreached people groups. And so over a long time of trying to figure out where the right place was, where God was calling us to go, we landed on uh, kind of where we're going now. And so we're going to Indonesia in about a month, uh, the beginning of October, and um, once we get there, we'll go to a small kind of remote island. Uh, it's 30 miles by 60 miles. It has 400,000 people. It's called Muna Island, and the people are the Muna people. And to this date, only one Muna person has ever come to Christ. Um, and, and in fact, he had to go to a different island to hear from a missionary there. And so he'll actually be part of our team that, that's going to the Muna Island uh, to hopefully take the gospel there for what is probably the very first time they're, they're going to hear it. Uh, so we're excited for that, but, but a question that we have been asked repeatedly, and a question that we've had to ask ourselves repeatedly, uh, is this. Are you ready? Uh, are you ready? Do, people would ask us, do you feel like you're ready to go to the mission field? Do you feel like you're ready to leave all the people you know and leave your home and the culture you know and go to a continent neither of you have ever been to? And the answer has always been, no, we don't feel ready for that. Um, and another question that, I mean, the same question that we've been asking ourselves is, are we ready? Are we really equipped? Are we really the right people to be doing this? And so that's why we're going to be spending uh, this morning in what has become quickly one of my favorite chapters of Scripture. And that's Jeremiah chapter 1, because as we look at Jeremiah in chapter 1 of, of the book that he titled after himself, uh, God calls him to ministry, and he asks himself this same question. Am I ready? I worked for some time on a ranch in northwestern Wyoming. Uh, on this ranch, it was a horse ranch, I, I just worked as a carpenter. I didn't do much with the horses. And I remember this one day extremely specifically. Uh, I was working in the carpentry workshop. It was kind of separated from the rest of everything at the ranch. And I heard a truck just barreling down the road. And we had 103 horses and mules and a lot of livestock and different people going around the ranch. So people usually drove pretty slowly. Uh, so kind of wondering why somebody was driving so quickly, I peeked my head out of the workshop. Well, as I did that, this truck that was owned by the ranch comes screeching to a halt. The window rolls down, and the driver, who was the assistant manager of the ranch, peeks his head out and yells at me to get in. So I run up to the window, and I say, okay, what's going on? Do I need to grab anything from the workshop? Do we need any specific tools? And he just says, look, we don't have any time for that. Just get in the back. So I rounded the back of the truck and hopped in where several other people were also. And then as soon as I got in, the truck 
cleared down the road again. As we were going, we, we left the church property and uh, we drove across a bridge and we went about 20 minutes from the ranch. So we had a lot of time in the back of the truck to try to figure out what exactly was going on. And as I asked the other people, uh, everyone was in the exact same boat as me. I had no idea what was going on. This truck had pulled up, they had been yelled at to get in, and they just got in. So as, as the truck finally comes to a stop, we're looking down this hill into this area that's called Big Swamp. Uh, and, and immediately, we knew why we were there. See, one of the wranglers at the ranch, uh, his name was Tyler. One of the wranglers at the ranch, Tyler, that morning had taken out uh, this one horse for the wrangle. He, he was going out to bring in the rest of the herd of horses. And he picked Honey. Honey was the biggest horse on the ranch. I mean, she was absolutely massive, well over a 1,000 pounds. But she was also this sweet, gentle giant. If there were ever kids on the ranch for some reason, they would ride on Honey. If there was ever somebody that was unsure about how to use a horse, they would ride on Honey because she was sweet and compliant and good-natured and extremely obedient. Now, that morning, uh, because the herd was farther out than usual, Tyler had decided to take a shortcut. To take a shortcut right through Big Swamp. Uh, if, if you know anything about horses or anything about swamps, it's a terrible idea. But he decided to do it anyway. So as he's heading through Big Swamp, slowly Honey's feet, her, her, her hooves, uh, begin to stick. And as they stick, she starts to panic. And, and she tries to pry them out. But as she tries to pry out her hooves, they only sink deeper and deeper into the mud. Until finally... She can't move her legs at all. Now, something strange happens to horses uh, when, when they start to panic to that degree. When they get stuck and they start to panic like that, if they feel like they can't get out, they just give up completely. They give in to this deadly apathy. And they just lay down on their sides. And it, it looks like they're okay. They're just resting, maybe resting to, to get up and try again later. But in fact, they've completely given up. And even as they've given up, their heart continues to race, and the panic sets in deeper. And as their heart beats harder and harder, and their breaths become more and more labored, eventually, their heart gives out, and they die. So this is how we found Honey. We ran down this hill into this swamp, wading through the bog, and we find Honey laying on her side, heart beating out of her chest, taking labored breaths. And we knew there wasn't much time to act. As we look at Jeremiah, in, in Jeremiah chapter 1, he is faced with a similar problem. Just as Honey was petrified by her own fear and she starts to give in to apathy, Jeremiah begins to be petrified by his own fear and he has a choice. Is he willing? Is he willing to, to follow God's call or is he going to give in? to a deadly apathy. Let's read in Jeremiah 1, chapter, or chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God gives Jeremiah this absolutely beautiful calling. He says, I formed you in the womb. But before I even did that, 
I knew exactly who you were. I knew every single detail of who you were. And because I knew who you were, uh, before you were even born, I consecrated you. And that word consecrated means to set apart. So things in the temple or in the tabernacle were consecrated. So if, if a piece of furniture was in the temple, it was consecrated, it was set apart from every other piece of furniture in the world. It was considered holy, not because it was any different, but specifically because God had set it apart for an intended purpose. And that purpose, in some way, would glorify him differently than any other piece of furniture in the world. And so God says this about Jeremiah. Uh, you, I have set apart for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to be a prophet to the nations. I have set you apart to be a prophet to the nations, to glorify me in a different way than any other person in the world. So he says, I knew you before I even started to create you. Before you were even born, I consecrated you. I set you apart from the rest of humanity, and then I appointed you to be a prophet. That's, a, that's an amazing calling, and, and sometimes I wish that we just all got very clear callings like that from God. And this calling can't apply to each and every one of us because it was given specifically to Jeremiah. But we do know from Scripture that, that God does know us from eternity past, each and every one of us. And he has consecrated us. If we're believers, he has set us apart from the rest of humanity to glorify him in an extremely specific way. And though our calling might not look exactly like Jeremiah's, we do see it in Scripture. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is about to ascend. He's about to go back to heaven to sit on the right hand of the Father until thousands of years later, who knows how long, he will return. As he's maybe contemplating his last words to the disciples, to the foundation of what will be the church, the disciples are asking different questions of themselves. Starting in verse 6, the disciples ask this. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're, they're wondering uh, what we would say. We would ask Jesus, uh, Jesus, at this time, is, is this when revelation is going to happen? Uh, when, when is revelation going to happen? When are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? See, they just seen Jesus die and then raised again. They knew exactly who he was. And thinking back to the prophecies of the Son of Man in Daniel, they knew that he was going to establish this everlasting reign where finally Israel would be free of oppression and then finally they would have everlasting peace and Jesus would reign forever. And so they ask Jesus, is this the time? And here's Jesus' response. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So he says, that, that's the wrong thing for you to be worrying about. In other words, uh, the Father knows exactly when those times and those seasons are coming, exactly when he's going to establish the kingdom. But, but right now, that's not your concern. And then he gives him, in, in the same breath, it's all one sentence in Greek, so in the same breath, he gives this, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says, 
Stop worrying about when I'm going to establish my kingdom and instead worry about building up the kingdom. Worry about this commission that I'm giving you to go to the ends of the earth to make sure that every single people, nation, and tongue knows exactly who I am. Has the same opportunity to have salvation that that you have. As I mentioned before, we have an 11-month-old son, and one of the things that comes with that is reading a lot of books and reading a lot of the same books over and over and over again. And one of our favorites and one of his favorites as well has become uh, this book by Max Licato called In Case You Ever Wonder. At the end of this book, uh, it's written from from the perspective of a parent. The last page of this book The parent says to the child, God wants me to tell you about heaven. Heaven is an amazing place, and it's a place with no tears, and there's nothing to fear in heaven. But most of all, God will be there, and I will be there, and I'll be waiting for you so that we can live together with God forever. I remember the first time my wife and I read that, we broke down in tears because that's such an amazing hope. We have this hope that our son will join us in eternity. We have this hope that our son will, because he's exposed to the gospel, accept Christ and glorify God side by side with us for eternity. And then as as we were kind of reveling in in how joyful that, that revelation was, our Tears turned to sadness because we thought of the people we're going to, the Muna people. 400,000 people and not one of them, well, only one of them, knows the gospel. That means that there's 200 to 300,000 sets of parents that have no hope for their children. They don't only not have hope for themselves, but they don't have hope that they will be worshiping the true God for eternity alongside their children. These are an entire people group without hope. That's why God gave us the Great Commission. That's why these are Jesus' last words to the church. This Great Commissioning, this great mission for us to be on, to take the gospel to everyone so that everyone has hope at least has the opportunity to have hope. So what's, what's the church's call? Christ has called us to go out and make disciples of all nations and peoples and tongues so that God can be glorified by all people and save all people. Now for the first 70 years or so of the church's existence, uh, we actually did a pretty good job of that. In the first generation of the church existing, we took the gospel from just one city in central Judea, as far east as India, as far west as Spain, as far north as what would one day be called England, and as far south as Ethiopia. I mean, they they basically took a map of the known world, and they said, we're going to hit every piece of this. So they hit most of the known world, but 2,000 years later, we still only have most of the known world covered. 40% of the world, 40%, still lives without access to the gospel. There are still 7,000 unreached people groups in the world. And if 40% of the world is without access to the gospel, then you'd think about 40% of believers would be going to reach those people. But instead of 40%, 
it's 0.00036% of Christians go to the unreached. In terms of church finances, two one-hundred-thousandth of one percent. Two one-hundred-thousandth of one percent of the money that Christians make goes toward ministering to the unreached. That is grossly disproportionate. The church finds itself in a world that's in desperate need of a savior. It's a world that's ravaged by war and hunger and disease. A world where human trafficking is at an all-time high and racism runs deep in every culture and society. This is a world crying out for help. It's crying out for truth. Crying out for someone to save them. And the people who have the answers stay huddled together in complacency. More likely to leave their church because they don't feel like they're being spiritually fed than to leave their home to spiritually feed someone else. Spiritually feed someone who, who desperately needs it. Who desperately needs salvation. We spend more time talking about politics than we do the gospel and we're we're more concerned with the latest development on tax codes than we are with how many people don't know who Christ is. The church has been stricken with apathy. We've deceived ourselves into thinking that we serve a God whose chief goal is to make us happy and comfortable when we serve a God that the Bible shows us demands that his people give up everything just to go out and witness to even one person. And we give endless rationalizations for reasons that we don't need to be a part of God's mission. But we know the truth. And that's, that's why we're in Jeremiah 1 this morning. Because Jeremiah is extremely, extremely relatable. God gives this amazing, amazing calling to him, giving him, laying out specifically what he's going to do in his life. I, I have known you for eternity past. I set you apart from the rest of humanity, and I am appointing you to be a prophet. And yet, this is Jeremiah's response. In verse 6, he says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. So right off the bat, he makes an excuse. Now, just to get some background on Jeremiah, we learn from the first few verses of Jeremiah and then later throughout the book of Jeremiah that uh, he was the son of a priest. And his dad came from a priestly line that served in a town nearby Jerusalem. So Jeremiah would have known exactly what was laid out for him in life. He would serve the people in his town in a specific way that his father had. And then, at certain times, he would have a shift in the temple, and he would go and work in the temple. He would glorify God with his life, teaching the law to the people of his home, and then work in some capacity at the temple of God. It's a great, it's a great life, and it's a God-glorifying life. He knew exactly what was ahead of him. He knew what he was doing, where he was doing it, and when he was going to do it. And at the age of most... most um, Scholars say he was probably about 12, 8 to 12 years old. So all this is happening to a middle schooler. At about the age of 12, he would have already started some of his priestly duties. He would have been finished in most of his uh, priestly schooling, done with his education, and he would be starting kind of like some internships. And so out of nowhere, even though he knows exactly what's destined for him in life, God calls him to something else. 
And now as somebody who would have studied the word quite a bit, he would know what happened to other prophets. The life of prophets wasn't great. Sure, they were lauded and loved by generations later on in time, but in their own generations, they were hated. They're hated and despised. They're persecuted by many times even their own families, and that would be true of Jeremiah himself. And ultimately, most of them were killed. And so... When Jeremiah hears God's plan to completely divert where he's going in life, he instantly makes an excuse. Now, whether that excuse was because he was afraid, afraid of persecution, afraid of changing up his life and he just didn't want to do it, or because he was legitimately insecure about these things that he was making excuses about, about being too young for anyone to take seriously and and for being too bad at public speaking for anyone to want to listen to, Either way, God's response is the same. God responds like this in verse 7. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. God's response to Jeremiah is basically, you have no excuse. Okay, so you think you're too young? His response is, Right away, don't say that you're too young because you're going to go to exactly who I'm sending you to. You think you're bad at speaking? Well, that doesn't matter because I have put my words into your mouth. Notice he doesn't say, yeah, no, you're actually lying and you're not too young. He doesn't say, no, you're actually not bad at speaking. Those things might have been true, but God says that does not matter because I am with you. And then he speaks to this third fear that Jeremiah didn't even state in verse 8. Do not be afraid of them. That's those who will persecute him. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, it's not a promise that he won't be persecuted. In fact, it's a promise that he will be persecuted because he'll need deliverance. But God says, don't fear them even in the midst of persecution because I will deliver you. God's response to Jeremiah's complaints, to Jeremiah's excuses, is I will be with you. I'll be with you to prepare, to equip, and to protect. And God gives us the exact same promise. If you look back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he starts by saying this, but power will come upon you when, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So first, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. First, we have God with us. Because that's all that counts. It doesn't matter what our abilities are. It doesn't matter on your personality test what your strengths and weaknesses are. God doesn't care about any of that. All he cares about is that he is with you and he will accomplish his task in you. So when it comes to, to the question, are we willing? Are, you, are we willing? 
The answer has to be yes. See, Jeremiah asks himself this question. Am I ready? Am I ready to be a prophet as God is calling me to be? And he answers no. God, you need to find someone else because I'm too young and I'm not good at speaking. And God puts it back on him. That that wasn't what I was asking. I'm not asking if you're ready. I'm asking if you're willing. Guys, when it comes to God's mission, he isn't asking us if we're ready. He's not asking us if we're ready to do all of the tasks or all of the specific roles that he has set aside for us. Because the truth is, we're not. He's just asking if we're willing. And he will do his work through us. I can remember running down this hill and seeing that horse, Honey, with her heart beating out of her chest and taking these labored breaths. We knew we probably only had about 20 minutes before her heart would give out. So we had to act quickly. Now the person who had the most experience with horses, he he started lining us out on what we needed to do. He said this, uh, we only have probably about 20 minutes. And And then her heart gives out. And we can't do anything about that. We can't pick her up. We can't pull her out of the mud. She's well over a thousand pounds. There's nothing we can do to help. She is the only one that has the ability to get herself out. We just need all we can do. All we can do is to convince her that the mud is more dangerous for her to lay down in. Her, her fear is more dangerous for her than trying to get out is. And so three of us threw ropes underneath her through the mud and then got ready to pull, just to alleviate a little bit of weight. Hopefully that would help her get up. And then one guy got in the front and grabbed the reins to, in the hope that if she got up, he could, he could lead her out of the bog to the, dry, to the nearest dry patch that he could find. And then Tyler, the, the man who had ridden her into this mess, got the worst job. He had to stand behind her with the whip and convince her that it was more dangerous for her to stay put than it was for her to try to get out. So I remember so clearly we started, and we all started yelling and trying to startle her, doing anything to try to get her to stand up. And we were pulling on those ropes with as much might as we could, slipping in the mud and falling ourselves and getting up and trying to get any leverage to pull her up. And Tyler is yelling behind her with every lash of the whip, begging her to get up. And I, I could just see in his face that he's brokenhearted, that, that this is what he had to do. But I remember so clearly as, as everything looked like it was getting grim. It looked like Honey was completely giving up. She wasn't even raising her head with the whips anymore. Tyler gave one last whip with everything he had, and his voice broke. And he said, please, Honey, please just get up. And I looked over, and there's tears streaming down his face. And with that last crack of the whip, Honey leapt to her feet. And she started trying to trudge through the mud. And that guy in the front started pulling her as hard as he could toward the right direction. And eventually, her, one of her hooves reached some dry, solid footing. And then she put all of her weight on that and got all of the rest of her hooves out. And as soon as she got on dry land, she, she galloped as far away from that swamp as she possibly could.
Only honey had the ability to pull herself out. She just had to overcome this fear that she had, this crippling fear that was making her give in to apathy. God gives us this calling. He gives the whole church together this calling. And only we have the ability to answer it. And we either answer it or we give in to a deadly apathy. Only unlike honey, we're not risking our own lives. We're risking the lives of those who do not have the gospel. So that's why churches here in southeast Michigan need to be just as committed to the Great Commission as churches on the other side of the world that are nearby unreached people groups. Because actually, uh, unreached people groups are coming here. There's refugees. Uh, refugees are flooding into the Detroit area. And uh, last I saw, there's 14 different unreached people groups that now live in the Detroit area. Because there's people from Syria and Afghanistan and Lebanon and Yemen that are moving in. So we have opportunities here among us. John Piper says that there's three responses to the Great Commission. There's only three responses. The first one, the first one is to go. To be someone who is sent out by your church to go to a different people group, to go to uh, somewhere that's just a different cultural context than you were raised, and to preach the gospel there to people who have never heard it. And that's the first option. Jim Elliott, who was a, a famous missionary who gave his life trying to reach an unreached people group, an unengaged people group, said this. The burden of proof is not on me for why I should be a missionary. It's on everyone else for why they're not. In seminary, he was very well educated. He was doing well in all his classes, and professors and class, class members alike would, would ask him, why are you going into the mission field? Why are you wasting all this? And he said, look, the burden of proof, it's not on me. The burden of proof is on you for why you're not going. So that's the first option, is to be willing to answer God's call by going. Now, second option is this. You can be a sender. What does it mean to be a sender? It doesn't mean to give in to a missional apathy. It doesn't mean to give in to not caring about the, global commi- or the, the Great Commission, to God's global call. What it means is that you're intensely involved in God's global mission in every way you can be. That means praying for missionaries that you might know. Staying engaged with them and making sure you can make them feel loved in any way you possibly can. Caring for them when they come back to the States. But also, it means engaging where you are. In your neighborhood with with the neighbors around you. Inviting over non-Christians. Establishing relationships. and, And bringing people over for meals so that you can start digging deep. Hopefully, bring the gospel to those who may not have heard it, or maybe have heard it, but, but haven't let it take root in their lives. There's also opportunities, like I said, with, with refugees in the Detroit area now that you can actually reach unreached people groups, and there's many refugee ministries in this area that you can be a part of and join, and, and most of them, all you do is you try to build relationships with people from, from other countries, and you just show them love. And hope that you get an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Being a sender also means that that your goal is to raise up missionaries from your own congregation. And prepare them 
and equip them for the ministry that God may be calling them to do. So those are two of the options. To send, or to be a sender, to be someone who goes, someone who is sent. And then the last option John Piper says is to be disobedient. Those are the only responses to the, to the global call of God, to the Great Commission. So God asks us, not are you ready to join his global calling, to join his work among the nations, but are you willing? When God told Jeremiah that he was going to be with him, there were no more excuses from Jeremiah. There were no more complaints. Jeremiah had his reasons that he didn't want to go into ministry, but God said, I will be with you, and that was it. God tells us that he will be with us. Is that enough for us? Because he's not asking if we're ready. He's just asking if we're willing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being a God who loves the nations. We thank you for being a God who loves all people because if you weren't, then we ourselves would not be saved. Thank you for being an all-merciful God who desires to reach out and to love others. We just ask that we would reflect that in ourselves and that as you ask us, not if we're ready, but if we're willing, our response would be, yes, Lord. I am willing to serve you in the Great Commission in any way possible, whether that is here in Southeast Michigan or if that is to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.